Hello and welcome to Take My Advice with me, Ollie Henderson. It's clear that in 2020, the world of work has changed. For many businesses, the idea that employees have to be in an office every day is already a distant memory. Every poll you read tells you that there are very few people who want to return to a daily commute and instead, there seems to be a preference in general for a hybrid approach, splitting the week between the office and another location, whether that's at home or somewhere close to it. Now, this is only the first stage of the mass evolution of work and an early part of it at that. Once we're able to assemble again, leaders will have many decisions to make and the location of the office and the frequency with which their employees visit it will be just one. Today's guest works at the forefront of the exploration of how this future could and should look. Alison Bourne-Gates is general partner of Semperverance, a Silicon Valley-based early stage venture capital fund focused on the future of work. I discovered Alison's Medium articles a few months ago, in which she brilliantly articulates some of the challenges and opportunities that existed even before 2020 and that are now rapidly accelerating. Amongst other things, we discuss her ideas on what she calls the flipped workplace, the relationship between education and work, the difficulties of measuring outcomes in a remote work setting, and workforce tech. Before we start, if you're enjoying the first series of Take My Advice, please subscribe and check out my newsletter, Future Work Life. This is a fascinating conversation, so I hope you enjoy. Alison, thank you very much for joining me. Whereabouts are you today? I'm here in San Francisco, one of the few left. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, I'm one of the few left in London as well. I think often the easiest place to start is for you to explain who you are and, and, and what your interest is, particularly in the future of work. Yes, absolutely. I'm Alison Baum-Gates. I'm one of the general partners at Semperverance, which is a venture capital fund focused on early stage companies transforming the relationship between employers and employees. And that's how we define the future of work. And the fund, it's relatively recently established, is that right? Yeah, the fund was started in 2018. We're currently investing out of fund two. And I mentioned we focus on this relationship between employers and employees. The fund was established and is really built upon this platform of employers who are thinking actively about the future of work and what that means for their people. So we have a network of about 1,500 HR leaders, mostly CHROs, who are at Everything ranging from fast-growing tech companies all the way up to Fortune 500 publicly traded companies. And we work with them really on a daily basis to understand how they're thinking about their workforce, what are their healthcare needs, their financial needs, their daily productivity needs. And so we work with them to find new solutions that are gaining traction within that community, as well as to introduce new solutions that are within our portfolio that they can leverage as they think about navigating this crazy uncertain future that we're all living in these days yeah exactly and i became familiar with you and your work earlier this year i'd read an article which actually i think you wrote in 2019 called uh, called the flipped workplace and well there's a couple of things struck me about it one it it was so aligned with my way of thinking but also it seems so prescient because it was written what 18 months ago i guess and of course yep. some of the references you were making were looking at this forward future you know future perhaps in five ten years i think it's fair to say that we have arrived at that point far more quickly than anybody expected Mm -hmm. definitely 
And that's how I've really based my entire career in the future of work. You know, I've, I've been really passionate about the space because of my own experience. And so the flipped workplace was something that I started evolving into myself as I've been navigating my career and living across different cities and working in different industries. And so it's been interesting to see that become more mainstream as time goes on. But you know, I grew up watching both of my parents have their jobs being constantly changed and replaced by technology. And that was really formative for me when I was figuring out how to navigate my own career and then came out of college in the middle of the financial crisis and ended up luckily with a job. Well, luckily or not luckily, I don't know how you want to put it, but was on the trading floor at Goldman Sachs. And when I was there in the middle of the financial crisis, I was seeing that even though Goldman was a leading firm, they were far more likely to replace jobs with automation where they could when they were under pressure, right, from policy perspective, but also from a, a financial perspective. And I was seeing these jobs around me that were very high level jobs being automated by technology and replaced by algorithms. And I was only a few years out of my own <laughs> educational experience which is admittedly very privileged, having had the opportunity to go to Harvard and have an economics degree and to work on this trading floor, and then just still only a few years out of school, be at risk for my own job being automated. And so at that point, I figured if this is a problem for me, it's going to be a problem for everybody and probably sooner than we might think. So at that point, ended up leaving and really dedicating myself to avoiding that fate for myself, but also building a system that would allow other people to avoid that fate as well. And you, I believe, were one of the early employees at General Assembly as well. Would you mind just explaining who General Assembly are and what the ambition of the business was? Because I think it fits in terms of the narrative that you just outlined. Definitely. So General Assembly is an education company which is committed to helping professionals transform their own careers and pursue work that they love. So General Assembly provides education programs and resources to teach digital skills that are highly in demand, like web development, digital marketing, user experience design, product development, et cetera. And it was really interesting because I got involved in the company, again, because of my own need. As I decided to leave Goldman, I started navigating the workforce and the job market for myself back in, in 2010, 2011, and went and decided that if technology was the future, I should probably go work in technology. And so I started interviewing at all of these technology companies, whether they were startups or um, larger tech companies at the time, like Facebook or Google. And they all looked at me like I had 10 heads and they said, you have an economics degree and you work in equity derivatives. If we're going to hire you, what do you expect to do here? You're yeah. interviewing for this role that really has nothing to do with your skills. And to me, that just highlighted this giant gap between the skills that education is providing and the skills that employers actually need. And at that time, it's when I met the, the team at General Assembly and they were building these programs. And I admittedly said, I don't have any experience in education or in technology, but I'm really passionate about the problem you're solving because it's my problem. Yeah. And therefore, I believe it's going to be a really big issue. And so joined the team and helped develop and launch those programs in New York. And then as we raised several rounds of venture capital, ended up moving out to Asia to launch our business out there. And it was a really interesting experience to see that this is not a US specific problem. It's an issue everywhere in the world. The timing might be slightly different based on, you know, the economy and the government, but 
technology replacing jobs is something that's happening worldwide. Yeah. This conversation around education keeps coming up on on this podcast because, of course, there is a direct link between the way in which we're educating kids, young people at every stage of education and the future of work. How how do you see educational tools and educational technology progressing and supporting this constant evolution of job skills and, and supporting the new types of businesses which are emerging? Absolutely. I mean, my view is that the future of work and the future of education are inextricably linked. And in some cases, the workplace is leading. And in other places, education is actually leading. So I think, you know, when it comes to thinking about how the workplace is changing, the that classroom was originally developed to mimic what the, the workplace looked like. And you had this factory-driven, manufacturing-driven industrial economy where people were going to work in factories for a specific amount of time and, you know, clock in, clock out. There was a bell kind of signaling when you had a lunch break, et cetera. And so the education system really reflected that reality. And that's why you go to a classroom and you sit there in a desk and you learn with all these people and it's supposed to be exactly the same. But what technology has enabled in both cases is a certain level of personalization to how you learn, where you learn, and then similarly, how you work, where you work, et cetera. And so this kind of redistribution of content network and kind of unbundling of both education and a career is something that I've been watching really closely. So it's really interesting to see that. And that's the principle of the flip workplace, isn't it, which I referenced earlier on. Would you mind just explaining why you use that term specifically and the relationship, as you just explained, between education and work? Definitely. And here's an example where I think education really led the the workforce in a lot of ways. And when I came up with the term and started thinking about putting a name on this movement, it was exciting to see that there was an example you know, when video and the internet started making educational content ubiquitous, you know, accessible, there were a lot of, there was a group of teachers that said, hey, this doesn't make sense at all. Why are we bringing students into a classroom, conveying them information, expecting them to all absorb it at the same rate and in the same way, and then sending them home to figure out how to apply it? That's completely backwards. So they pioneered this concept of the flipped workplace, which was we're going to share content ahead of time with our students, allow them to consume it in their own time and in their own way. And then they really only come into the classroom to work with each other, to ask questions and to apply their knowledge. And it was really powerful because one, it enabled students to learn in different ways and at different paces, which ultimately impacted their outcome. And two, it also started to unlock a little bit of the role of a teacher and transform that from an expert to more of a coach and a facilitator. And we actually have a a massive shortage of teachers. And so the fact that we require them to be experts on everything is part of that. So transforming that relationship has been really critical as well. And so that started to really have an impact on how education um, was formed. And I started to see the same evolution happening in the workplace. I myself went through this transition of, you know, when I was sitting on the trading floor, we clocked in, we clocked out. That was a you were mocked if you spent more than 15 minutes getting your lunch during the middle of the day. And, but when you left work, your day was over. 
in a lot of ways. So, yeah. and then when I met, met, went into the startup world and I was at General Assembly and it was basically like, we don't really care what time you come in. We don't really care where you are, but get your stuff done and we'll be happy. I started working in a way that was conducive to my priorities. And then over time, as I lived abroad, started to create this mix between working at home on my own, but then still being part of the community and being able to access uh, a group of people in a co-working space or an office or whatnot. And yeah. so I started to connect the dots there and came up with this concept of the flipped workplace, which is that in the future, and I think for a lot of people today, you know, COVID-19 notwithstanding, the idea that you can accomplish your own work on your own, you know, your individual work on your own in your own way. And, you know, as we were speaking about before, if you have young kids or maybe you're a morning person or an evening person or whatever fits you, as long as you're, you're being judged on your productivity and not on your time, the ability to accomplish that on your own, and then really only come into an office when you need to be highly creative or collaborative or build relationships you know, I think we've all found as we've been forced into this remote and hybrid world that we are social animals and it's hard not to be around people. And so even if you're not going into a traditional office, having that kind of relationship where you can have context and, and see people in person is really important. So you can't really do only one or the other, but being able to weave both together is really exciting. And then there's this sense, isn't there also that those people within the workforce who perhaps have had to adapt most to remote working are possibly managers into the sort of traditional sense of middle management. Their mm -hmm. job primarily is to organize people, monitor what they're doing, monitor their progress. And in a remote setting, that is proving more difficult. And there is an idea that actually in the same way that teachers become coaches, actually managers evolve to become coaches as well, mm -hmm. to, to guide people in the right direction, provide advice and support, frankly, because certainly in my experience, the job actually right now is to provide the level of support and autonomy to people so that they can thrive in this environment. Because let's be honest, work and life bleeding together has become just something that we've become very used to having to deal with. Totally. I think there's two points I want to make there. One is that as you transition from a teacher to a facilitator and a manager to a coach, that also enables this really, I would say, the most important part of the flipped workplace, which is flipping the employer-employee relationship and moving from a world where you're being told what to do to where you decide what to do. And because we're living in a world of constant change, that's the only way to adapt over time anyway. You have to be able to learn yourself, yeah. you know, figure out what you should be prioritizing, navigate relationships in, you know, a productive way. And, and so it, but it does require a mindset shift for yeah. everybody where, you know, if you go to school and someone tells you what you should be doing every minute of the day, of course, you're going to expect that when you go into a workplace. And so that mindset shift, that mindset flip, I think is the most important part of the flipped workplace. I don't typically lead with that because sometimes it's like a little bit too much, but an important nuance. Absolutely. Yeah, again, I mean, the idea of job crafting has come up a few times recently in conversations I've had and that idea that actually who better to design their job and identify the specific outcomes of the job than the person doing it every day. But it is a big mm -hmm. leap of faith, I think, often for management 
to suddenly empower people to do that. I think it's one of those things, isn't it? That you, when you see it in action, it's, you can see how effective it can be, but it, it isn't yet something I think that we've seen at scale. I, in my experience anyway, I'm not sure if yours is any different. Definitely. And I think part of that is that we don't learn that growing up. And so when managers allow their team members to have that kind of autonomy, many people don't know what to do with it because they never learned. And therefore, it, they aren't meeting the expectations of the manager. Maybe the expectations aren't clearly communicated and then the framework isn't provided but I think if you just leave everybody to their own devices and say, you know, go ahead, a lot of people don't know what to do with that. And so there is some level of education and I don't want to say handholding, but being very explicit and over communicating expectations is really important. I also think there's, there's a great book by um, Steven Pinker called Drive. And he talks about the things that motivate us as individuals are not what you might expect. And we think money and prestige are what really push people forward, but really it's about impact, autonomy, and purpose. And so to the extent managers can start to use that framework to speak to employees and, and team members about you know, how to manage their time and how to compensate them, frankly, I think the better off we'll all be. I think purpose in that context is really talking about allowing people the opportunity to progress towards something and achieving something and I think that's what's really important about intrinsic motivation isn't it my experience of particularly the early stages of, of lockdown and where we're all almost having to muck in together it seems to have in, injected a sense of purpose into people which actually otherwise ha, had been lacking I mean you've, you've pretty seen the Gallup surveys which show that so few people are actively engaged in work but I think any surveys around the, particularly on the, the, the first part of lockdown aside from the uncertainty which existed I think people were suddenly much more engaged and supportive of other people and the businesses that they worked in. I think you made a really important point there which is that the term is often used incorrectly yeah. especially as I sit here in Silicon Valley you know this region is notorious for companies that claim to be saving the world and really they're just building enterprise software. Yeah. And so I think there is a lot of misuse of that. It, it needs to be very specific and actionable. And it doesn't necessarily mean, oh, our purpose is to change the world. Sometimes your purpose is to get through this day or to meet yeah. your quarterly numbers. It requires managers really breaking that down into something that's tangible and accessible for individuals as opposed to you know, trying to make it too highfalutin. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I completely agree. So when you originally talked about the flipped workplace, I think one of the ideas you had was that many people had the feeling that they had to escape the office to, to have their focus work time. So, you know, you'd sneak off to a cafe or, you'd, you know, find some time at home. That was before you had kids running around all the time in my case. <laughs> but, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd literally actively leave the office to get that focus time. And then you perhaps return to the office to do the collaborative stuff or have what I call those more spontaneous moments, which are, I think, important to innovating and sharing new ideas. And that is one area which is really difficult to replicate online. Mm -hmm. But how do you think that this idea is going to translate when you have much more distributed workforces and the remote work becomes the norm. So rather than having that place in which we congregate, and those opportunities to share and collaborate more difficult online, do you think any companies have cracked that approach, whether you know, in terms of internal practices or whether there's any development technology you see in which has helped support that, those, establish those sort of water cooler moments which are famously talked about? 
I think there's two different levels to the flipped workplace. There's how does your company build their structure? And then how do you as an individual build that structure for yourself as well? And so I think there are a lot of situations and I've lived this myself, whereby you're remote compared to the rest of your team, because let's say you're a distributed first company, but you still structure a day-to-day flow where you can still go spend time with people that are part of your relevant community, even if they're not necessarily part of your actual company. So let's say you live and work in Tampa, but you are at home for the first part of the day doing your individual work, perhaps doing Zooms, et cetera, but then you're a member of a co-working space a few blocks away and there are other startup founders or people with similar roles or industries that are there and that community is really important too. So I think there's this idea of distributing work in more than one way and distributing your relationships and your collaborative and creative relationships outside of just your core team as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the co-working spaces have got a bad name over the past six months for understandable reasons, (laughs) because it doesn't necessarily lend itself, does it, to a pandemic? But actually, I think in the long run, I can definitely see more companies adopting that as you as people allow work from anywhere practices, or some people are calling it work near home. You know, we're certainly seeing in the UK that fewer people will probably travel into central London, but more of the, the suburbs with smaller towns, commuter towns, will perhaps have co-working spaces established there so that you have people congregating in their local area and very seldom actually going into the, the big city where in which they might have previously been commuting five days a week. So that's again an interesting, an interesting development, which probably it may have happened at some point, but you, you wouldn't have foreseen that happening in any time soon, would you, pre-COVID? No, I've always been a big believer that hybrid work was going to be the future, but didn't realize it would happen this quickly. And especially in here in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, because we're such a tech dominated economy, a lot of the companies headquartered here have been first to move toward a distributed or remote team. What I do appreciate is there is diversity within those distributed strategies. So you're seeing companies that say we're remote first forever. You're seeing companies that are saying, hey, instead of five floors in one office building in San Francisco, we're going to have one floor in five cities across America. And we're going to still create a centralization around those cities, but there will be more than one. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I do think, and this is a trend we saw in the consumer industry, and we're starting to see it in, in the work and enterprise industry, and in education as well, is that we are living in a network-driven society. Success is determined by network. Motivation is determined by network. Job opportunities is um, determined by network. And I think that's, that's a, we could debate about why that is, but ultimately you need to be part of a community. And if you are doing multiple jobs at once or multiple jobs over the course of your career, all of that is determined by your network. And so we need to teach people and encourage people and create systems in which they can focus on building networks that help them navigate change over time. You had a nice framework I read in one of your articles that you used to describe the future work, the five Ds. I thought it'd be a useful kind of reference point, actually, because there are many different big ideas around the future of work, but cutting it down to some simple concepts can help people put into context the different steps and the relationship between each of them. Definitely. I'm a big fan of alliteration, primarily (laughs) because I have a terrible memory. So it helps me remember things. So I came up with this framework, which was initially called the three Ds. 
And then in the middle of COVID kind of added two additional ones as the future was accelerated when it comes to work. So my belief is that the future of work is five things. It is digital, distributed, data-driven, dynamic, and diverse. And I'll talk a little bit more about each one of those. But I think the future of work is digital. You know, whether you can debate the timeline of this, but ultimately technology will enable us to automate any task that is repetitive. And a lot of physical work that we thought couldn't be automated is being automated today, as you've seen this emphasis on you know, cleanliness and bottom line. And COVID has really motivated a lot of businesses to invest in technology for automation so that they can survive long-term disruption in in the way that they are. So I do believe the future of work is digital and not physical. And so we really need to plan for that when it comes to skills, our own careers, et cetera. The second is distributed. And I mean distributed in two ways, both over space. So we talk about distributed teams geographically, but also over time, meaning two things. A lot of people are, will have more than one job at once, and they will have even more jobs over the course of their lifetime. So that's the extended definition of distributed. From a data-driven perspective, as we think about even our, our personal lives, we have this concept of quantified self, right? I mean, people know how many calories they eat, you know, how many hours they sleep, what is the quality of that sleep? you know, your size and all of these things that we weren't aware of in in a quantitative way before, but that still hasn't exactly been applied to work. And, you know, engineering is on the cutting edge of that, where a lot of employers are able to real-time measure productivity of engineers because they can track GitHub, for example, and they know how many um, times they push new code, et cetera. And ultimately, we will, the data is available for the most part in terms of you know, what kind of outcomes people achieve and what are the inputs to that outcome. We just don't necessarily have all of the science yet to draw um, causality beyond just cor- correlation, but I think that will definitely happen over time. Then when COVID hit, it became very clear that we need businesses and individuals that are more than just resilient to change, right? There's this framework called anti-fragile, the idea that if something, a structure or a system is fragile, when it breaks, it's, it never returns to its original state. Resilience is when it returns to its original state. But there's something better in which you can create a system that actually benefits from disorder and disruption. And that requires you know, agility and adaptation to change. And so the word dynamic being added to the list of Ds was really meaningful to me because you know, we're just living in this time of unprecedented uncertainty. And I reflected on my own career and kind of thought, oh, well, you know, this is just a really crazy time in COVID. And like, yes, there's never been a global pandemic before. But, you know, if you look back over the last 10 years, it's just been one thing after the other in terms of change, and it's only going to accelerate. So being dynamic and, and agile is really critical. And then finally, diversity is something that has come up and been, there's been a renewed focus on this year. And I think it's something that is really critical to navigating change. So in order to be dynamic, you have to be diverse. You need people that have different perspectives and points of view, because it allows you to see the risks that are around the corner that might not seem obvious to you necessarily. Yeah. So I see that as a business imperative as well. There's loads to follow up on there. And my experience of the data-driven point is actually that a lot of businesses struggle with outcomes 
So when you've got something very quantifiable, like shipping code or making a certain number of sales calls, you can put targets on these pretty easily. And in that context, there's often existed this idea that if you hit your numbers, then do it in whichever way you, you like. But there are actually a lot of businesses, think of a creative business, for example, where it's a little more intangible around how you measure outcomes. And I think a lot of people I'm speaking to are struggling with this idea because this idea of presenteeism was a much easier system, wasn't it? It's like, oh, I can see that you're at your desk between nine and five. You must be working reasonably hard. If I can see you, it's okay. Mm -hmm. So I'm just interested to see whether you've found any businesses which have, have tackled that in a particular way. In, and in general, what sort of outcomes we can use in order to facilitate people working in this flipped way that you've outlined? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And it, in fact, in my view, reinforces the importance of that diversity piece because being data-driven is critical. But if you use the wrong data, it can lead to building a system that's inherently disadvantaged. And so there needs to be an active ongoing conversation about that piece. And I think a really interesting kind of way to render it tangible is thinking about marketing. You're spending this amount of money on marketing. You know how much money you're making, but how do you draw the line in between? And you have to, in the beginning especially, be okay with a certain amount of uncertainty. We've just seen an explosion of innovation within that space to be able to track um, those outcomes and understand what they mean. And so I think we're only at the beginning of that evolution. I mean, ad tech really, you know, it's been decades that's been in development. And so applying some of that methodology to work, but also encouraging conversations within the process that allow us to really analyze beyond just the numbers and understand how it all fits together. So I think there are a lot of people, and especially in creative industries, that are starting to think about that. We have several HR leaders within our network that are in creative industries, production, games, et cetera. And we've talked to them about how they think about how effective remote work has been over the last year. And part of it is that those development cycles are very long. And so they haven't been through a full development cycle. And so you can do pulse surveys on your employees and ask them how productive they feel. But at the end of the day, we, don't, we still don't know. Yeah. But that requires a lot of long-term thinking and diverse creative approaches to understanding how data can be used to, to help us understand all of that. Yeah. Oh, it's a fascinating area, isn't it? I'm just so attached to a particular way of working. Every morning between 9 and 11, I have my focus time and I've built up my own measurements to to determine how productive that period was. So I can demonstrate it to other people. But I think it's more tricky for younger people coming into the workplace where actually there's much more guidance required. So they've taken advantage of those periods of focused work can sometimes be a bit bewildering as was my experience when I've managed people. You know, I say, look, you know, take some time to have some deep work in the morning and what you'll find is 45 minutes in, they're looking over thinking, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing. (laughs) Which is why I just think it's a really interesting challenge from a management point of view. And when I'm having conversations with people around this at the moment, I'm talking around ways that people can optimize their time. But without the necessary metrics to support it. it's sometimes difficult to make that case and of course you've got okrs and you've got various kpis which businesses put in place but i don't think we've cracked it yet yeah when i talk about when i talk with employers about how to implement the flipped workplace i actually break it into three pieces 
the first being workflow. So of course you have to think about like, how am I spending my time? Where am I spending my time? Yeah. And you need tools to support that. But the second piece is culture. And yeah. I define culture as institutionalized priorities. And that's something that needs to be very explicit, especially for younger employees that maybe have never operated in this level of autonomy. And so the more you can give people a framework for how to prioritize their time, their various data points, how they think about outcomes is really important. And culture is such a woo-woo word in a lot of ways that it's hard to think about it in a really tangible framework. But I think it's really critical. And then the third piece is compensation. So I think if you want to change people's behavior, you have to change their incentives. And this is something that nobody really has an answer to, which is why I'm so fascinated by it, of course. But you know, how do you shift from paying people by the hour or even just paying people a salary for X number of days of work and shifting towards more project-based compensation, outcome-focused compensation? It's a, that's a long road, but it's, it's one we're going to have to navigate if we expect to see any real change. Yeah, we've started to see that a little, aren't we? I mean, we're seeing more platforms which allow people to find project-based work. So they're the sort of signs which are showing that we're changing the paradigm around how people are paid. And that advances that compensation question mm-hmm. to, a, to a point. And if we can see that scaled out across different industries and various different job functions, then it's been an incredible new way of working. Definitely. It allows people to choose what kind of work they, it allows them to value their own time and outcomes as well. Yeah. So again, I mean, I'm very much in the finance business and technology kind of industry day to day, but I think there's so much to be learned from different types of industries and, and creative industries are really on the cutting edge of a lot of these trends. And so we don't really need to look further than that for some innovation, which is fun. You mentioned earlier on diversity. Now, I've read some stuff you've been writing recently about diversity and venture. What's your experience of entering venture and becoming a general partner of a fund? And are there battles that are being fought in terms of the challenges of entering that industry for people who, frankly, aren't white, middle-aged men? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been really fascinating to navigate. I think there is a serious lack of diversity in venture capital, as well as a corresponding lack of diversity in VC-backed founders. And that is a result of the way the, the industry really came about. I mean, venture started as an industry post-World War II when the U.S. government realized that having you know, cutting-edge technology was essential to national security and the survival of our nation. So they started investing in research and development. And then rich families in the U.S. started investing in commercializing the technology that was coming out of this government-funded research and development. And then slowly over time, it's evolved from rich families to, you know, there was a publicly traded venture fund that began. And then, you know, slowly they've been changing regulation that allows to, you know, reducing some of those barriers and allowing other types of investors to access that wealth. But the way venture capital funds are structured, you know, whether you're a young employee or a general partner, you're required to put money into the fund. And when you start a new fund, you don't make a salary because it takes a year or more to raise it. So there are these natural barriers to entry. And there's been a lot of really amazing work happening, both on the policy side, as well as innovation within kind of these structures that have that create these inherent barriers 
as well as creating networks of diverse investors, whether they're angel networks or groups like AllRaise that are bringing female investors together or Black VC, which is bringing you know, investors of color together. And all of that is really important. I think my biggest question at the moment is, because venture capital is such a network-driven investment strategy, and it's so momentum-based, is exclusivity a feature or a bug? And my initial hypothesis is that venture capital being exclusive is actually a bug. It prevents us from finding new innovators, from funding people that really have the ability to change the world, but maybe don't have access to capital. And I still think that's true, but there's still an element of, when you can't actually measure the success of a company in the first 100 days, if it's not out, there is no real hard data in the beginning. And so the only way you can measure success is through your network and through perception of success. And that's really hard when you don't have concentration of all of that. So anyway, there's a lot of progress, but we're at a real turning point for the industry where, you know, we need to see how this all plays out. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm interested to hear a quick profile of the companies that you're working with. And I don't know if we've got a couple of highlights of some interesting pieces of technology, for example, that may may be addressing some of the challenges we've discussed today. Definitely. One of the silver linings of our current economic environment is that it is very much highlighting to employers how there are systemic barriers for diverse or underrepresented employees to succeeding. So, you know, for example, if you have children at home and you're also trying to work remotely, it's way more difficult than if you don't. And employers are seeing that if they want to keep those employees and get the most out of them, then they need to be providing different types of benefits to help them succeed. So we've been seeing a lot of of innovation within our portfolio, but also in new companies opening up, you know, mental health care as a benefit, employer-provided benefit, child care, family planning, you know, as a benefit from employers and and shifting some of the money that used to go to these kind of meaningless in-office perks, like Mm. ping pong tables and free lunches, and instead saying, let's provide people with the support that they truly need to be happy and healthy and productive. So that's really exciting for us. And one of the reasons why we focus on this employer-driven distribution model, because, you know, I personally believe there needs to be more of a a system of support for employees to be successful and individuals should not necessarily be responsible for paying for that themselves. So from a healthcare perspective, just have seen we're investors in a company called Spring Health, which is taking a data-driven approach to mental health care provided by employers and really leveraging data to route people to the right type of care for them at the right time. And we've just seen that entire space explode, which is really exciting. And then we are also seeing a new age of awareness around diversity. And we're investing in a company called Matheson, which is providing free member management software to diverse professional groups, and then working with employers, allowing the members of those groups to opt into being recruited by employers. So it also allows individuals to self-identify as diverse. You know, we've been creating this system where People are forced to look like the employer that they want to be working at. But instead, if you can say, yeah, I'm different and you should want me because I'm different, it's really powerful. And so they open up that candidate base, but then they also work with employers to provide 
you know, coaching on how they manage that candidate pipeline, figuring out how to remove bias from job description or remove bias from interview processes, and then providing ongoing training for employees and managers to understand what diversity in the workplace really means and how do you enable that. It's a full service platform. So we're really excited about that one as well. Yeah, do you know what I really like about all of the examples you gave? It comes back to that original idea of personalization, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So we haven't got very much time left, but there's a bit of a show that I called Take My Advice, I'm Not Using It. We had a chat before and you said that you've received some good advice over the years, but also some questionable advice as well. I was wondering whether we could, <laughs> we, we could just reflect on that. I'm interested to rewind to when you were 20 years old and I wonder whether you've got any advice you might give your 20-year-old self, knowing what you know now. One of the things I've learned over the course of my career, which I didn't know when I was 20, and frankly, nobody told me, but I try to tell as many people as possible, is that spend time figuring out what makes you different and invest in that. I think there is so much pressure to look like everybody else, do what everybody else is doing. But if you look at where you came from and also where you want to go, figure out what's differentiated and really lean into that because at the end of the day, that will only serve you well, even though it's a little bit more difficult in in the beginning. You mentioned diversity in in venture funding. Are you seeing that more now? Are people emboldened to be themselves and have their own way of doing things, their own style? Definitely. I think venture as an industry has gotten a lot more competitive as we've democratized what it means to start a fund. We've seen an explosion of new funds, explosion of capital coming into the industry. We've really made it a lot easier for people to start companies and to build companies. And so because there's so much noise, you have to figure out how to stand out. And so we're seeing a lot of that happening, which is ultimately a good thing in my view, because if you are outspoken about what makes you different, it also allows you to find people that share your views and your values. And then you can create a network based on that if you're not seeing that in the current network where you are. And, you know, the other piece of advice that I think about a lot is, you know, I started my career listening to Sheryl Sandberg talk about the importance of leaning in, but I actually think it's more important to lean out. And if you're in a situation where you aren't being valued or recognized or listened to, or your diverse perspective is not important, then leaning in is only going to waste time and energy for everybody around you. I don't think you can change large institutions, but you can change what you do. And so it's actually much better for you to lean out and start something new and Mm. find people that share your values and your perspective and your mission and do that sooner rather than later, because you'll just lose your heart and your hope if you uh, stay in those kind of environments. That's a great bit of advice. Alison, thanks so much for your time today. I really enjoyed chatting. Some really interesting thoughts. I'm going to share links to your Medium articles around the flipped workplace and to your LinkedIn profile as well. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So that was my conversation with Alison Bourne Gates, and it certainly leaves us with plenty to mull over. If you're interested in these topics, I'll be following up with some thoughts in my newsletter, Future Work Life, later this week. You can subscribe to that on Substack via the link which you'll find in the show notes. Until next time, take care and have a good week.